Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to today's discussion on the Supreme Court of Canada's leave to appeal. The objective of today's discussion is to shed a bit of light on an aspect of Canada's judicial process, both for enhanced academic discourse on the Supreme Court, thereby providing advice and guidance for litigants and counsel should and when they prepare their materials for leave. My name is Faris Hussain. I am a final year JD student at the University of Ottawa. I have the great privilege of introducing today's guests, esteemed legal minds in their own right, all of whom worked on cases of significant importance to Canada and have helped enhance this country's judicial discourse. Corey Giordano is a partner at Supreme Advocacy LLP and offers strategic and advice and assistance in drafting leave to appeal applications, responses, factums, and motions in Canadian appellate courts. During his articles, he participated in criminal trials at the Ontario Court of Justice and the Superior Court of Justice. Corey has conducted civil motions and negotiations for clients in Ottawa and Toronto and serves as an agent and counsel in various leave to appeal applications at the Supreme Court of Canada. Jeff Beadle is a partner at Gowling WLG's Ottawa office and focuses on Supreme Court of Canada agency services for Canadian lawyers. His practice includes drafting materials, providing strategic advice on leave applications, appeals and motions. Jeff has been serving on the Court in Ottawa Agents Practices and Procedures Committee since 2002, advising on rule amendments, e-filing initiatives, and the use of electronic materials at the Supreme Court. Appointed to the, by the CBA, he joined the Supreme Court of Canada of Liaison Subcommittee on September 1st, 2022. Alyssa Tompkins is a bilingual partner at Gowling WLG's Ottawa office. A member of the advocacy group, her practice focuses on public law, corporate and commercial litigation, arbitration, and appeals and judicial reviews. Alyssa has served as lead counsel in cases at all levels of court in Ontario, the Federal Court, Federal Court of Appeal, the British Columbia Supreme Court, Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court of Canada. She currently serves as the Vice Chair of the Advocate Society's Regulatory and Administrative Law Practice Group and is a member of a member and former chair of the County of Carleton Law Association Technology Committee. Alyssa has also clerked for the Honorable Michel Bastarache at the Supreme Court of Canada between 2007 and 2008. And finally, our academic voice into this conversation, Professor Paul Daly, a Cambridge University PhD graduate and lecturer, as a senior lecturer in public law and has held various positions, visiting positions at Harvard Law School, the University of Ottawa and the Université Paris Pantheon Assas. An internationally recognized public law expert, his academic work is frequently cited by the Canadian courts and administrative tribunals. His blog was the first ever cited by the Supreme Court of Canada. As a research chair in administrative law and governance, Professor Daly looks to enhance the relationship between administrative state, individuals, and the courts, while exploring the per proper role of artificial intelligence administrative law. Without further ado, let's get into today's discussion. Topic 1. In 2005, an academic by the name of Roy B. Fleming characterized the leave to appeal process as one being a tournament, where some issues won the court's attention by being granted leave, while others lost. Justice Supinka, famously in 1997, uh, outlined points used to determine whether or not a case would be worthy to be granted leave. Of some of those points were two. Firstly, whether or not the issue of public importance was germane to the disposition of the case. And point B, if an issue dealt with an upcoming piece of legislation or existing piece of legislation, the court would hesitate to grant leave. This notion of public importance was 
emphasized by general counsel for the Supreme Court, Barbara Kincaid, who spoke about this as a baseline standard by which the court granted leave to appeal for an applicant's case. So to get us started, I'd like to hear from our private practitioners. As practitioners, how does the public importance standard pan out in, in practice? And how has it informed how you prepared leave applications? Alyssa, why don't we hear from you first? Well, that's the challenge often is taking a case and identifying the issue of public importance, because as you've alluded to, the Supreme Court is, is not a, a court of error correction. Uh, they will correct errors, but you got to get their attention first. So the way you get their attention is by identifying the so-called issue of public importance. Now, um, I think it used to be called an issue of national importance. And I, I think that standard, uh, we've broadened it, but it nevertheless holds in the sense of often if you can identify something that is of interest to more than one jurisdiction, then that's an easy way uh, to, to call an issue one of public importance. Ideally, you can find uh, conflicting lines of case law out of provincial courts of appeal, uh, or even one recently I was involved with the Gottlieb, we were able to find, it was an Ontario problem, but we found similar legislation in six other provinces, such that that assisted in convincing the court that, yeah, this looks like an Ontario only dispute. We may not have that conflicting appellate jurisprudence, but you know, if, if this rogue decision is allowed to stand, it could impact all these other provinces. So you don't need to have national a national impact of your case but that that tends to help so those are just some things that come to mind for me at first blush but it is absolutely the challenge is to turn your 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 framework from one of just error correction to trying to see a larger issue in the case law absolutely and i and i really appreciate that comment because and you're specifically your point about conflicting provincial case law. And as we'll get to this uh, later on in the discussion, that, that certainly is a factor that comes into the court's consideration of whether or not leave should be granted. Um, Corey, how about yourself? Well, thanks, Ferris. Uh, I would say before you write anything, uh, including a memorandum of argument, you need to know who your audience is. And in this case, the audience at the leave stage it's the Supreme Court of Canada. It's judges, but also a whole team of people at the Supreme Court, including Supreme Court law clerks. And you want to think about what their task is at, uh, at the lead stage. So I like to look at Section 40 of the Supreme Court Act as a jurisdiction conferring provision. But it provides the Supreme Court of Canada the discretion to manage its workflow and to decide what cases it wants to hear. So from a strategic perspective, the preparation of a leave is about demonstrating to the court that this is a case they ought to hear. I would, I would sort of, not to take issue with the, the gladiatorial uh, analogy, but I would uh, say it's more like a movie trailer. It doesn't tell the whole story of the case. It doesn't give away the good parts necessarily, but it encourages the audience, in this case, the Supreme Court, to get to the theater. And so the next question I would ask is, then what is an audience primed to respond to? And my working hypothesis regarding Supreme Court of Canada judges at the lead stage is that they, a lot of them are extracted from provincial courts of appeal or at some stage of their career had experience with the test for leave in some court. 
So if you look at those tests for leave in other jurisdictions, there's a little more guidance, let's say, in the jurisprudence on, on those tests uh, than, we, than we have the benefit of with Section 40. If you look at those tests, I find that you can reduce them to two key factors. One is the merits factor, and the second is the public importance factor. So there needs to be some kind of a hook in a case, something that the court can actually deal with and address if leave were granted. But you also have to relate the case, as Alyssa alluded to, to a wider issue. Ideally, some controversy between different courts of appeal in different regions um, and something that affects real Canadians on, on the ground, something that relates to people. So that's, that's how I approach it generally. Thank you for that, Corey. And I think that your analogy of the movie trailer and knowing your audience reminds me of something a lot of, a lot of our professors in law school remind us of in our legal writing. Uh, so I think that, that, that point is that that common theme and strand is very important. And even at the stage in which you're applying for a leave at the Supreme Court, even more critical. Uh, Jeff, what would your thoughts be on this matter? Well, I'll just see if it can add to Lisa's thought that you have to find a hook. And, uh, and Corey's... Uh, uh, very strong point, which is you're writing to a particular uh, audience, and and it is uh, not just the the judges and 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 probably not even the law clerks, but uh, you're also writing to a um, an invisible group of uh, of staff lawyers uh, in the law branch who who uh, spend more time than the judges uh, vetting these leave applications. They write a bench memo that uh, includes not only an analysis of the case, and they've gone back and looked through the court's jurisprudence, but it includes a recommendation to the, to the judges. So that's an invisible part of the audience. They call it the black box in the, in the, in the process that um, is, a, is a, um, a real aspect of the, of, of the leave process. I work for, for other law firms, uh, other Canadian law firms who retain me to, to uh, sort of join the council team and, and help as best they can to, uh, to uh, either win leave or resist leave. And, and I start by reading the Court of Appeal uh, reasons. Uh, in many respects, the trial uh, decision is, is, is less important. Uh, if you have a very sh a short set of reasons in the Court of Appeal, um, it, it indicates that the at least those three judges uh, didn't have much trouble applying the law to the to, to the facts. If you've got a longer uh, decision, especially if you have a, a strong dissent, uh, there's more grist for the mills, more to work with. So there's a, just those reasons are the the Court of Appeal reasons are the starting point. That's what you're seeking leave to to, to appeal, and. I'm preparing myself for a discussion to have with the client counsel, the counsel that argued uh, the appeal and lost um, at, the, uh, at the appellate court uh, below. And I'm preparing myself to kind of reorient uh, their focus, uh, they being in perhaps a state of denial as to uh, the result uh, that they, uh, they, they obtained, particularly distressing if they won at first instance. Trying to um, uh, discuss with them um, how how we can uh, get this sort of back on the on 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 the rails and um, the you know I don't have a fixed checklist but I do uh, like to run uh, the case through the the, uh, the the sort of the Spinka test from his his speech to the law clerks back in 1997 those those 
principles and, and, and factors have been refreshed. Uh, Justice Cromwell did a very good uh, webinar in, uh, in 2015 for the CBA. Uh, and other judges in speeches more recently have, have uh, uh, raised what um, you know, are very much just restatements of, of what Justice Sabinka was, uh, was saying um, back then. And, and, and his point was, there are certain types of cases that tend to win leave, and there are certain um, uh, factors that uh, uh, will make a case um, uh, less likely that we're interested in granting. The factors are almost negatives as opposed to, uh, to, to, to positives. And you have to pay attention to those because uh, that's what the judges have in their mind. And it's also what the respondents are going to put um, um, put forward as the reason why leave should be be dismissed. So you have to both uh, think about what will interest the court and anticipate um, what the, the likely response is going to be, knowing you've got a, a right of reply, but you obviously have to lead in your main, uh, in your main uh, memorandum. And, and once we've had that discussion and had a green light to go, uh, the hard work starts. That's that's writing the memorandum. We spent a lot of time trying to get the overview uh, right. You 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 have to be able to impress the judges in that first uh, page or two that uh, there's a reason why they ought to take the case. And the rest of the memorandum and the and the uh, materials around it are really a supporting position for that uh, for that, uh, that that overview. And you have to be very careful professionally uh, to be responsible in how you. Um, put your pitch to the to the court. Obviously, you have to present it in the best possible light, but you don't want to uh, have the judges, you know, sort of reading your leave memorandum and thinking uh, that you've called wolf uh, when there there there's none in sight. For sure, and thank you for that, Jeff. I I think that what the, the common theme that I'm getting is that you're writing for almost multiple audiences when you're thinking about leave. You're you're thinking about the staff lawyers, the black box, as you mentioned. The, the judges, and, I, and again, I, I, the, we're going to get to this later in the discussion, but the, the idea of a strong dissent at the lower court judgment is very important, and we'll get to that. And thank you for pointing that, Jeff. Um, now, Professor Daly, public importance uh, is a broad concept. From an academic standpoint, given Roy Fleming's tournament model focuses more on the mechanics on behind a leave application and how it's decided, and Justice Sapinka's don't specific factors don't specifically elaborate the content of public importance. What would you say is the best theoretical framework explaining the public importance standard? Faris, thank you for having me on. Um, and I've been pondering this question because you provided it in advance um, for a long time now. Um, and I'm afraid to say I'm not sure I have an answer. I'm not sure there is a theoretical framework because I'm not sure it really can be disentangled from the mechanics. And, and what I see as an academic and sometime, someone who sometimes dabbles in practice at the Supreme Court of Canada is that the procedures and mechanics are very important. The fact that you have two parties, one proposing that a question is of national importance, the other uh, taking the opposite view, the fact that there are multiple audiences, the fact that every leave application is essentially treated on a, a level playing field, um, the 
treatment that the a big piece of litigation constitutional case gets is the same as a what a self-represented litigant gets in terms at least of how you um, how you see the leave process play out. Um, all of these factors contribute to make it very very difficult to uh, elaborate any sort of theoretical framework for uh, the idea of importance. Um, the mechanics are such that the parties are really juking it out over the characterization of the questions in any given case. And what has to be done is to attract the attention of those audiences that uh, Alyssa, Jeff, and Corey have mentioned. So I'm, I, I find it difficult to, to say that there is any particular theoretical framework that we could come up with for um, understanding importance um, more effectively. Mm -hmm. And Professor Daly, I think what I'm getting from that is that we kind of have to make sense of the chaos in, the, in a way, a way of, of the multiple factors that are there. We have to kind of work with what we've got. And that's I, I think that's very insightful and I think that that actually in a way is probably to be probably the best to be sensitive to all uh, dynamics that are at play uh, at, a, at, a, at the leave stage. Now um, I'd like to shift back to the private practitioners in the room and ask now the court does not post its reasons for denying a leave application. This is done apparently to ensure that a panel's discretion is not compromised and that the definition of public importance is allowed to evolve. Um, to what extent does this pose challenges for your clients? Uh, since for many of them, this is the so-called last kick at the can. And what do you take away from a leave application being denied? Uh, Jeff, why don't you get us started this time? Sure, well, picking up on the last kick of the can uh, reality, uh, the, uh, for any applicant, they're facing the uh, daunting statistic of what now is closer to five to seven a percent of leaves granted, uh, we used to think it was more like 10 or 12 uh, percent. Um, and uh, for, the, for, the, for the client, um, you know, to, to sort of put it in practical terms, um, often it's a business decision. Um, and that doesn't mean that they're in business, but it has to be a, some sort of a calculus of the fact that they've spent three or more years in the lower courts. They've spent a lot of time and uh, and and money um, on the on the on the case up to the point of uh, losing at the at the court of appeal, and the the relative uh, time and expense of seeking leave in comparison to what they've invested already. Um, can can impel that decision to go forward, uh, whether or not they think they have a strong chance of of leave. There are certain cases that have all the hallmarks and and all of the back all the sort of backstops and all of the interveners in in waiting to uh, you know deal with a, a large constitutional question. But if you're dealing more with a private law, a matter or, or a public law question that doesn't have the same uh, legs. Um, you know, the starting point is you're not likely going to going to going to get going to get uh, uh, leave. So when leave is denied, which is where you started with the question, uh, there's not a lot to be taken away um, from it, at least for the for the for the for the counsel and their client. Um, this is the realistic outcome of the uh, of of the request for 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 leave. It was an eyes open. Uh, decision to to uh, to invest in it. The court has 
what I consider to be a roving eye. I, I put it in positive terms, but in my mind, I think of uh, Sauron in, in Lord of the Rings and his, his uh, you know, sort, sort of, uh, you don't want to be caught in the eye, you duck behind the rocks uh, when, when, when it, it approaches. But you're doing the, you've, you've done the opposite uh, with the leave application. You're jumping up and down. Um, trying to catch the the beneficent eye of the of the court, and and it's 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 not always your case that has lost leave. It's the fact that the uh, the, the court has moved on to another uh, area of, of of interest, and and it's and it's also a little bit, um, you know, what can you learn from it? Um, the it's it's a bit like uh, you know investment advice. You, you don't chase the winners of last year if the court has dealt with that uh, with an issue um, and you thought well ours is just as good because uh, it's a it's an equally uh, good question and 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 record um, you missed you missed the boat and the courts you know move from copyright to uh, uh, internet defamation and and it's going to be a while before you're going to uh, get back but if you look at at certain areas of the law we are surprised to find out that you know, we thought we dealt with all the bankruptcy issues, and then there were three more bankruptcy cases that were granted leave uh, uh, last year. We thought we dealt with all of the, you know, sort of martial law issues under the Canada Defence Act, and there are three more of those uh, uh, granted. So the court will will surprise us in terms of either it having uh, lost interest or or persisted. In in trying to clarify an uh, an area of the area of the law, uh, so I, I guess as practitioners, it may inform us as to uh, the next case. But there's very little that we can do with the the one that's just been been uh, dismissed. Absolutely, and Jeff, I, I I liked your Lord of the Rings <laughs> analogy there, um, I, and and really I think the important uh, takeaway from that, I, I, I at least I for me was the fact that I mean. The courts moved on. I mean, the focus of the court has moved on, and to kind of take away from that, I think, is important for litigants. Um, Alyssa, how about yourself? Well, it's really funny because I generally agree that there's not much you can take from a decision to grant leave because, again, it's the t the question before the court is not did the court of appeal err. It's is there an issue of public importance. That said, I, I had a leave application dismissed last week, and I'm looking at a news article that says uh, Supreme Court of Canada sides with Brockville in fight with tall ships developer. So uh, clearly the media uh, isn't as up on the Supreme Court of Canada leave process as we all are going to be at the end of this podcast. So it doesn't mean that uh, the client obviously sent this article and um, was not happy about it. And I will say that from a private practice perspective, a huge part of this is expectation management, telling the clients from the start. But usually, like the, the way we game litigation outcomes is often, you know, percent chance of success times outcome. And, and this legal spend to date, the, uh, the costs at the Supreme Court are very low because often a concern is an adverse cost award because you can also control your own costs but what you can't control always are opposing counsel's costs. So there's a tariff at the Supreme Court. So the the sort of the risk can be controlled on costs. And then as Jeff said, it often pales uh, the cost of a leave application compared to the amount at stake and often what's been spent to date. 
but uh, yeah, it's about expectation management. And then, like I said, no matter what we say, the media may pick up on something different. I mean, certainly if leave was refused when we're citing cases, you know, that's like the third thing we put, you know, leave refused uh, for an appeal. Does that mean much? I don't know. Um, you know, it's like maybe it gives it like a, a 5% boost over over another appellate decision that where leave was not refused. It's not a huge boost, but it's something that, you know, in passing, we'll say to the court, blah, 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 this case and leave to appeal to the Supreme Court was refused. So, yeah, that's sort of what we what we take from it. But we have the clients primed going in, even in cases where I think there's a good chance. I tell them that, like, even a case with a really good chance, there's all these unpredictable factors that I think we're going to get into later, but have been alluded to today. Absolutely. And I, I really like the point on expectation management. I think as advocates, uh, our primary objective is to fulfill our clients' needs and expectation management really comes at the central feature of that. Um, so thank you for that, Alyssa. Uh, Corey, what are your thoughts on the matter? I would just return to basics. All the decision on leave means from a technical perspective, if it's denying leave or dismissing leave is all it means is that the court determined its jurisdiction is not engaged. Nothing, nothing more than that. Alyssa is absolutely right. When you read decisions, trial level decisions, court of appeal decisions, they, they typically will cite uh, a, a court of appeal decision in which leave was uh, refused and they'll include that. And I think the inference we're asked to draw is that the Supreme Court of Canada is somehow rubber stamped that decision. But as it, when you look at the technical definition, what's actually going on at section 40, that's not the case. On the other hand, if you're seeking leave and you start to see leave dismissed, leave dismissed on a number of uh, court of appeal decisions uh, in the subject area, especially if you see that uh, as a start to form as a pattern uh, where the same question is coming up in different jurisdictions and repeatedly not being considered by the Supreme Court of Canada, that's potentially something that you could use in a memorandum of argument. That's potentially something that you could frame um, as an unanswered question that that merits consideration from the court. Absolutely, and I and I like the the return to the basics point because it's kind of, and and section forty because it really points to the what's enumerated in the act, um, and also the point of the pattern because I think that that points to areas in which there is an opportunity to advance the law. Thank you for that, Corey, and thank you all. Those were all very insightful answers. Now. Professor Daly, I'd like to get your perspective on the fact that Justice Sopinka pointed out that if an appeal issue dealt with existing or upcoming legislation, that the court would hesitate to grant leave. Now, to what extent can we tie in Peter Hogg's dialogue theory to the Supreme Court's use of leave? Well, I think the, the, the idea of dialogue theory is that there's an ongoing interaction between the, the legislature and the, uh, the courts uh, on a particular issue. I'm not sure how much of a difference it makes that there's a dialogue on any particular issue. Um, if the court is holding back on granting leave because it is hoping for further analysis in courts of appeal, I'm not sure that's different depending on whether there's dialogue or not on a particular issue. Uh, the court may simply find that its understanding is going to be enriched if the issue percolates for longer. And that can be as true of something that will be captured by dialogue theory uh, as something that that is not. Um, 
just to pick up on the, uh, the, the comments of my, my colleagues on, on process, the process is very important here and the mechanics are very important. The uh, tradition or practice of not giving reasons is significant. Not all apex courts refuse to give reasons. The Supreme Court of Ireland, for example, does give reasons when deciding to grant or not grant leave in a similar um, similar test applies there. Um, in the United States, uh, my understanding is that petitions to the Supreme Court of the United States from self-represented litigants go into a different bundle um, and don't necessarily get addressed by the members of the court. Um, and that means that the members of the court have more time to focus on high-profile issues and they have a practice sometimes of writing dissents when uh, their colleagues refuse to uh, grant um, grant permission to appeal a sort of a way of of calling out um, the majority on a particular issue and the fact you know you could be called out is something uh, which is potentially a significant consideration so um, it's important I think to uh, consider the mechanics but also to consider them if possible in a comparative perspective and understand that this is not the only way to do things and that the mechanics chosen in Canada might have an influence on the types of cases that do make it to the three important to make it through the leave stage. Thank you for that, Professor Daly. I, I really like the comparative aspect of the Supreme Court of Ireland and the United States. I think that that uh, provides helpful reference of analysis for why uh, it is that the reasons aren't given in the Canadian stage and can help us, I guess, understand the, the significance of that. Uh, so thank you for that. Now, I'd like for us in our discussion to move to our second topic, um, which is the trends regarding believe. Now, Paul Eric Veal, who is a lawyer at Lensner Slat, conducted research on trends regarding leave to appeal. Um, his research found and indicated that since the beginning of Chief Justice Wagner's court in 2018 until 2022, there was a somewhat downward trend in leaves granted by the court. Uh, uh, Paul Eric Veal hypothesized different explanations, such as cases being less leave worthy or the court becoming stricter in its approach. This downward trend note has seems to have stopped in 2023. Now, an interesting rationale was postulated at a CBA conference in 2012 about leaf trends in 2000, in 2000 <clears throat> where both Justice Major and Counsel, Counsel Eugene Meehan suggested that even if the court granted leave, uh, it would quickly dismiss the appeal, implying that the court wanted to create binding national precedent in an area of law. Now, I'd like to ask the private practice, whether it's commercial, criminal, constitutional, or certain characteristics of a case, whether it's a class action or whether it had a stronger lower court dissent, uh, whether it's an appeal of right as of right, uh, lower court majority, whether to, uh, to what extent do these factors inform the advice you provide to clients about pursuing a leave application? Corey, uh, Eugene is actually a close colleague of yours. Uh, why don't you get us started on this topic? Sure. Well, at our, you're, you're absolutely right, Ferris. At our firm, uh, we have an incredible team. I'm grateful to work alongside Eugene and Marie-France and Tom every day. And what we do together is uh, consider a case, decide if we want to get behind it. And when we're in, we're all in on that case. Um, it's a case-by-case -case assessment always. Um, I would say there's a class of cases or um, cases that share characteristics that lend themselves towards producing a strong memorandum of argument, to producing a strong uh, leave. We've discussed those, uh, I think, in some of the previous answers. So a strong narrative hook, conflicting court of appeal decisions, and obvious legal controversy, dissent, 
something like that, something that you can federalize. Um, but then it's about your team. It's about who's writing, how you frame the issues. There are cases um, which uh, on their face do not appear to be uh, raising issues of national importance that we've been successful in obtaining leave. So last year, for example, the Supreme Court of Canada granted leave in the Earth Co. Uh, soil mixtures case. It's a case about the sale of goods act and um, whether a particular sample of soil matched its description in, in the course of uh, engineering a solution to the Moore Park project in Toronto. So you know, it's obviously a property and civil rights dispute. It's it's uh, peculiar to, to that statute. It's peculiar, perhaps, to that situation. What is it about that case that makes it uh, worthy or meritorious of, uh, of, of leave? I, well, I think in that particular case, we were able to frame the issue uh, such that we pulled all of those dynamics that we've been discussing earlier. Uh, we tried to find ways to federalize the case. We tried to tap into old disputes, old legal controversies uh, uh, that are endemic. And the thing about the Sale of Goods Act, like many sections of our law that get used over and over and over again, is uh, you kind of get into a rut where people, there's not a lot of juridical consideration of that uh, area of law. So a lot of the precedents become uh, very old. You see uh, 20, 30 years before there's any kind of update or revision from the Supreme Court of Canada. So that's something else that you can try to um, to uh, to use to your advantage in, in constructing a, um, a meritorious application for leave. So to wrap all that up, there's nothing uh, there's nothing uh, that there's nothing in the trends that's going to that's going to persuade us to to select a case or not select a case. It's about looking at each individual case on its merits, reading that court of appeal decision, reading the lower court decision, getting a sense for situating and contextualizing that case in the, in the jurisprudence and deciding if it, if it sticks out, if it's something that, uh, that attracts that gaze uh, or not. Thank you for that, Corey. I, I like the point on uh, something you can federalize. I think that's uh, very much what uh, Eugene was pointing out in his remarks at the CBA and also the fact that you're contextualizing the individual case in the sea of the jurisprudence. I think that's very helpful analogy for understanding it. Um, Alyssa, how would you about yourself? Well, just to follow up on what Corey said, the way I always think about it is, I mean, identifying an issue of public importance is hard enough on its own. But then the second part of the analysis for me is why this case? Because when I'm responding to a leave application, commonly, well, the easy ones are like, there's no, no issue, nothing to see here, straightforward application of settled law to the facts. Sometimes they raise an interesting issue. So then the response is, yeah, but not this case. And that's where you have to get into like, why is this case the one? And you try to either, if you're applying for leave, <laughs> You're trying to say, you know, what makes this case good? Like, what is it about the record? I think Jeff alluded to that earlier in his comments, too, that sometimes a case can just be a mess. Like, I remember one I did um, involved like a tower of insurance. Jeff was involved, too, this tower of insurance uh, out of Quebec, where I actually thought there was interesting issues, but the record was such a disaster. There was hundreds of parties. Yeah, your office was involved with that, too, Corey. 
Betty Frost and Jeff and I were on calls. Like, like I was just like, the court is never going to touch this just because the amount of time it would take to like unpack that record. <laughs> it's just, I just didn't see the court wanting to get involved and they did not. So um, that's the other challenge. I mean, you, you try to tell the court, yeah, yeah, there's all these, all these documents, but it's actually straightforward. But yeah, that's the, the second part of it that can often be very challenging is even if you tease out, and I, I think I read that somewhere, maybe it was one of the Sapinka criteria, that the issue of public importance is germane to your case. Sometimes I see an issue teased out, but it's it's not really even squarely before the court. So that really... That is getting into what I call that second part of the analysis. That's like why this case, that that issue that, you know, has been waiting 30 years for the court to reconsider. Why is now the time? Why is this the case? And uh, that's that's sort of the second part of the analysis that that I would highlight. And, and I would just add that I think that that's very helpful because the it speaks to Corey's earlier point about the looking at it from a case by case basis. And it just reminded me when you said that, why is now the time? I think earlier someone mentioned, you know, oh, Jeff actually mentioned that sometimes the courts moved on from the issue. Like it's just moved on. And I think being sensitive to that um, is very, is I think very helpful and very insightful that you pointed it out. Uh, Jeff, what would you say on this? Uh, well, a couple of thoughts. One, one, one that came to mind. And this is uh, picking up on Alicia's point is that the the court, uh, you know, sometimes is looking for the right case with the right record at the right time, um, and and that that you know approach can even create a shape to a uh, to to a leave memorandum. Um, we were asked once. Uh, by the court having filed the leave application for uh, Canadian Pacific Railway, and this involved the Attorney General of Canada and the Canadian Transportation Agency on the other side, um, had to do with a, with a virus challenge to the um, to uh, new regulations that um, uh, CPR said were really dictated by the government and therefore weren't proper exercise of, of uh, independent decision making by the uh, by the agency court the three the three uh, justices on the panel uh, ordered an oral hearing for the the application and issued correspondence that directed counsel to address themselves uh, to and file further materials if they wish on whether or not the record was adequate to address the uh, proposed appeal and Everybody gowned up and went down and uh, had a uh, had a discussion with the uh, with the panel about whether or not uh, it it uh, indeed was sufficient. The the uh, judges decided with a brief uh, a brief recess that uh, that the record was and and they moved it on to appeal, where the appeal was when heard decided quite summarily and uh, and and dismissed essentially on the presumption that independent agencies always act independently to make it make it simple um but but so that is something that's often in the background uh that you don't necessarily expect when you're saying here's a great issue and and this is pressing and that is uh you know whether or not the foundation was properly laid some of these cases have to be built from the ground uh, ground up, particularly constitutional uh, and charter cases, from the ground up. 
Um, others are more peculiar, uh, and this goes back to something that uh, your colleague Eugene and I were involved in more than 20 years ago. City of Ottawa um, had to transfer six, we call them dog catchers, bylaw enforcement officers from civilian members of the police union over to CUPE. And uh, when they were moved over, those workers thought that the terms and conditions uh, weren't as, um, as uh, great as promised. And they, they brought an action against the, the city, uh, suing for damages for essentially um, pre-employment contractual promises. And, and that was uh, the, the question. Uh, the, the city having lost at the Court of Appeal was the question was, can that even exist or is labor relations not labor relations and this ought to be a grievance as, as had been uh, initiated as well. And, and we, won, we won leave, which was uh, fantastic. Uh, but when we got to the, the appeal uh, and Eugene was ably uh, mounting uh, oral argument, uh, it became apparent that there was a, a niggle in the back of uh, one of the judges' uh, minds, a procedural question of whether or not the the start of all of this should have been by way of summary judgment rather than preliminary uh, motion, and and the, the the decision in the end just sort of turned on the fact that the 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 proceeding got off to a, to the wrong start, and um, they never they never really dealt with with the uh, with, with with the leave question. So, um, you know, um, kudos to counsel that can come up with an issue that interests the court. Um, having one leave, the, 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 the excitement and the anticipation of winning appeal has to be held up against the, uh, the, 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 uh, the statistics, uh, which I think are that perhaps 55% uh, of you know, cases where leave is granted go on to win the appeal. It's, it's almost a break-even uh, proposition. So the, the, the court's interest in settling the uncertainty uh, isn't necessarily going to go your way in the result. Thank you for that, Jeff. And I, I think that the, the, your point on whether or not the foundation being properly laid, coming back at the actual appeal and then causing the actual leave question to not even be, uh, uh, you know, sp spoken on can actually is actually critical because then it's, it's almost as though you leave a hair untied and it unravels the whole case. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, I'd like to move to more of a macro discussion about the court itself. Uh, Professor Daly, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. To what extent would you say that the style or the persona of the bench can explain differing rates of leaves granted each year? Um, or is a bench simply responding to the policy and legislative circumstances of the time? I think it's probably a, a mix of both, though I would add to style and persona interest of members of the members of the court. Um, certainly, um, when uh, Justice Brown, for example, was a, a member of the Supreme Court of Canada, there were an awful lot of uh, tort cases involving duty of care and economic loss that made it onto the agenda. Um, I suspect I don't have any um, anything to any evidence to support this speculation, but I suspect that his uh, academic, uh, very strong academic interest in those issues um, was something which um, was an important factor uh, in that. Um, but I think benches, in terms of the types of cases they 
they take um, the style and persona and interests of the judges can really only get you so far. Um, they, I would think, are more responsive to the legislative and policy context um, over time. I, I think that probably matters more than the um, the personalities on the bench as such. Absolutely, and I, I think the example with Justice Brown on and his in academic interest in tort cases that that's very illustrative of the the interests of the bench being a factor in and is interestingly something that I didn't come across myself in the literature and very helpful. So thank you for that, Professor Daly. Um, now, I'd like to open up the discussion to all of you um, and ask that since about 2017, uh, about 700 self-litigants, self-represented litigants have sought leave to appeal at the Supreme Court. Now, the last one to receive a hearing was 2017. What implications could this potentially worrying trend have on how the public perceives the court? And what does this say about litigants and how the leave should be used? Would anyone like to go first? I, well, I can jump, jump in first. first. I think yeah. we're all going to jump in. Yeah. Absolutely. Corey and then Alyssa and then Professor Daly, I think. But go ahead. It's like Jeopardy. I guess we're all hot <laughs> on the buzzer tonight. Um, well, I would, I, would, I would not describe it as a trend. I think uh, the court considers each case individually. In my view, the court does not grant leave or grant leave to influence its statistics. I think Canadians can have confidence that the Supreme Court of Canada has a robust uh, leave process. And although it grants 10% or less of leave applications, it does a remarkable job at singling out important cases. Um, just by, for comparison, the Supreme Court of the United States, it's something like 1%. Um, so we have uh, greater frequency, if you want to put it that way. They have a large team at the court. Um, we talked about that before. Uh, but it's, it's important to bear in mind, I think, thinking of self-represented uh, litigants, that it's not as though they, they do not access justice. Because access to justice, in my view, it's not prescriptive. Uh, it doesn't mandate an outcome like you should have your leave granted. It mandates a process. So self-represented parties have gone through most likely at least two levels of court by that point. Um, as as uh, Jeff alluded to before, they likely did not prepare the record in a way that lends itself to an appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. They didn't uh, secure appellate rights. And perhaps why would they? Because they wouldn't be aware of that. Um, but the court is nonetheless fine-tuned to recognize a case with merit, even one that comes uh, from a self-represented litigant. I've, I've seen self-represented litigants get, get leave even during my, uh, my time. Um, if we're referring to the 2017 case, Mr. Mizrani's case, I think it was 2017-2018, um, Mr. Mizrani was eventually represented by counsel at the Supreme Court of Canada. If you go back a bit further, however, to 2014, there's the Miss uh, Elizabeth Bernard case. That was a true self-represented litigant, including at the Supreme Court. I, I listened to the webcast of that hearing, and in my view, she did a very fine job. But one thing that stands out in that decision is the remarks of uh, Justice Abella in The Reason. She, she describes Miss Bernard as being the protagonist in a legal odyssey. And I think that's how many litigants feel. Uh, they're the protagonists in their own legal odyssey, their own life story, and it's personal. There's a psychological appeal to the notion that you did everything you could. You fought all the way to the end, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And in my view, that drive 
is resistant to statistics, is resistant to uh, a strongly worded client advice letter. Uh, it's, it's a natural byproduct of uh, humanity. People like to, uh, like to uh, press on, and, and they do often in our courts. So I think all things considered, the Supreme Court does an excellent job of vetting those decisions that uh, have merit and, and screening out those which are uh, really a, a last-ditch effort to um, extend the period of time before they have to deal with the consequences of whatever matter has been litigated in the lower courts. Thank you for that, Corey. I think that the the, the point on access to justice mandates a process, and you know, uh, I think that was very important. And I, I liked your reference to the, the protagonist in the legal odyssey, Justice Abella's uh, yeah. commentary there. Thank you for that, uh, Alyssa. I mean, I think the problem is the the I say that writing a leave to appeal factum is the hardest piece of written advocacy. It's it's easier to do an actual factum identifying errors and saying how a court messed up a leave factum. And I'm not just referring to Supreme Court, same at Divisional Court, Court of Appeal in Ontario. It's identifying larger trends in the case law and showing why this one case is out of line with those trends. That's how the, there's a a test of general importance. I think it is in the provincial context. And those are like, I even suggest to partners, you know, you really need to remain engaged and discuss with your junior. It's not something that you can just delegate uh, and rely. Often it's in writing. So, you, <laughs> you know, you're not going to get the chance to come in on oral submissions, but um, it's hard for lawyers. So I think a big part of, and it's, it's probably hardest at the Supreme Court. So I think it's just also extremely demanding for a self-represented litigant to be able to craft materials that can actually meet that test. Now, I think occasionally the court will identify it. I also think, um, and part of it is when we talk about why this case, I mean, I have a sense that the court cares about the counsel. And they, when that issue is finally going to come to the court, it's not always the case. I, I don't think in every case they look at the counsel, but um, my sense is it's a, a minor factor among many. But if they're going to grant leave on an issue, they also want to have confidence that the issue will actually be addressed. And it, it'll be addressed by somebody who can engage with the court and answer questions. Now, obviously... Like Corey was saying, sometimes one litigant's determination, uh, some self-reps are super impressive, right? And some of them have, have mastered law to a degree that some lawyers haven't, but that is the, the minimum by far. So I think by and large, um, the risk of granting leave to a self-represented litigant is that the issue may not receive the hearing and the engagement we do have an adversarial system. Uh, I know the Supreme Court is is definitely fond of of coming up with things, but it's hard if if something's not been briefed in the factums for the court to really engage with it in the hearing. So, um, you know, the whole access to justice at the Supreme Court thing, I've I've never been a huge proponent of it. I think access to justice happens at the Superior Court. It happens at Law Pro, Law Help Ontario. Uh, there's duty counsel, 
type roles at the Court of Appeal, Pro Bono Law Help Ontario. But I mean, I, I just think access, a concern about access to justice at the Supreme Court of Canada to me is is of little consequence compared to our much more significant challenges relating to access to justice at lower courts. So, I mean, for me, the court is there to provide guidance in the case law and the jurisprudence. And I want the best cases to get there so that the court will provide that guidance because certainty and clear judicial determinations that helps access to justice. When I can tell a client, I'm really sorry, you just, you don't have a case, that actually helps access to justice because that client moves on. And that's why this trend towards multifactorial tests and whatnot is also problematic from an access to justice standpoint that, uh, you know, now I'm taking off. <laughs> but if the Supreme Court wants to talk about access to justice, um, I would say that they should look at their own case law uh, at a starting point, uh, as opposed to looking at self-reps, or f I'm going to be really blunt here and say traveling the country, that uh, access to justice happens when we're advising clients. And, th and that happens as well um, when I'm volunteering at pro bono law help. Like The clearer the law is, the easier it is for me to advise clients, the more likely I can convince them to settle because the case law is clear. So I think for me, that's the Supreme Court of Canada's role in access to justice. Um, and yeah, occasionally, great if self-represented litigants get there, but their test is to take cases of public importance. And I think the particular plight of the litigant should play a small role, a role. I think there is a, a, a small role for merit, but there's a reason that, that that's not the main test. So I think, um, to the extent that they're confident that a, a case meets the test, then great if it's a self-represented litigant, but I certainly understand why the numbers are the way they are. And apologies for that rant, but uh, no, no, <laughs> I'm no, very, I'm actually very passionate about access to justice, as you can see. No, absolutely. And no apologies needed. I think that your point on the fact that when you're creating a leave factum, that it's hard even for lawyers to tie in the issue and uh, to make it one of public importance. And I think that you reframe the conversation on access to justice with the idea of certainty actually, actually helps. Uh, and I think that that's a very nuanced take. And I think that's a very, it's a take and a perspective that's definitely needed when these conversations happen. So thank you for that, Alyssa. I think Professor Daly, you would like, you, you wanted to say something. Well, I can see the time is running short, so I'm just going to uh, endorse everything Cora and Alyssa said, except about multifactorial tests, which um, um, are the best way to resolve legal disputes. <laughs> Thank you for that, Professor Daly. Um, now, on to our final topic, and I, I'll keep it open for everyone again as well. Now, um, this is regarding the future uh, of uh, you know, uh, legal technology and artificial intelligence and belief to appeal. Uh, again, I'll keep it open to everyone. Um, to what extent do you feel that artificial intelligence will alter the way in which lawyers engage with the leave to appeal? For instance, firms have developed machine learning algorithms to determine the likelihood of a client getting leave to appeal at the Supreme Court. Again, open to anyone. I think what was said earlier about uh, costs probably uh, is an important factor here. That Whatever the algorithm tells you, um, if the 
the costs of um, of putting the application together are relatively low and the potential payoff is quite high even if the algorithm is saying that you've got uh, not much of a shot that's not going to um, that's not necessarily going to dissuade people there's there's still a chance it's also interesting to know to what extent the um, the variables the algorithms are relying on are um, exogenous or endogenous um, so for example if the algorithm is telling you that um, it's more likely to get uh, leave if there's a concurring opinion or a dissent in the court of appeal well that's not something a, a, a legal team can can do anything about once they're preparing a, a memorandum of fact and law that's already baked in and it doesn't really um, help them in terms of framing the the argument it's a factor that they can't really uh, control um, so um, I'm interested in the developments in this area but um, I'm a little bit skeptical about how much practical impact they'll have in this particular highly specialized area of legal practice Certainly. And thank you for that, Professor Delio, on the point of costs. Jeff? Yeah, I'm just going to go uh, backwards a bit, but it's it's, uh, it's it's not an impossible leap. Um, I didn't comment on on um, on the Globe Mail uh, article and, and its impact on Canadians' view of the court. But um, if if in any area uh, we, sh we uh, are anticipating the impact of uh, sort of AI uh, factums, um, perhaps causing uh, more work for the court and difficulties in terms of uh, how to deal uh, with them. It, it, I suspect it will be in the field of self-reps who may be very uh, skillful uh, with technology, but but less trained in the law. Um, so the the uh, attraction of uh, you know sort of uh, s s starting with uh, a uh, an artificially generated uh, um, if intelligent um, legal application or factum, um, perhaps not burdened by whatever code of ethics we can continue to develop in our bar our, our law societies uh, for, for how we conduct ourselves vis-a-vis -vis the court as, as officers of the court. I think that's going to be a difficult area to, uh, to, to, to supervise. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, we're all challenged by uh, technology every day. Absolutely, Jeff. Thank you for that. Uh, anyone else? All right. And I think, Jeff, the most important thing that you mentioned there was the code of ethics. I think that the the legal profession is really face grappling with um, developing ethical frameworks in terms of regulating AI just because it's it's growing at an exponential rate. I know that in my law school classes that our professors are encouraging us to use it. Uh, but even it, even as they're encouraging us to use it, there are new uses that are coming out. There's new legal tools that are coming out. Uh, so this is definitely an area in which you rightly pointed out there's exponential growth and to see how to grapple with it on a regulatory level is definitely going to be something of interest in the future. Um, all right. Uh, I think that caps it out. Um, I, um, any other thoughts? All right. Um, so I'd like to thank each and every one of you for taking part in this discussion. Um, you know, this was very insightful. I think there were a lot of points made that I think have left a lot of us to ponder with. Um, and thank you all for being willing to speak on this topic and enlighten, uh, you know, the, the listeners who may use this in terms of whether or not their counsel who are drafting materials for a leave or litigants concerning about whether or not their matter is one that can gain leave. Um, and again, 
thank you for taking the time despite your busy schedules. Uh, 